Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everybody. Um, we, uh, we come uh, today to, uh, we continue working through these great sort of teaching blocks that, uh, that Matthew presents of, uh, of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we come to the third block of Jesus' teaching uh, here, the parables discourse. And uh, kicks off with what really I, I think must be one of the most frequently preached passages of the Bible, uh, at least for those who have ever been to Sunday school or youth group. Uh, isn't that true? The parable of the sower, it's like a gift for preachers, isn't it? This is the sort of sermon that just writes itself, you know. There are four points. There is, a, there is an agricultural metaphor that is just thrown in there for you. There is craft waiting uh, to be made in response to this parable. Uh, and it even has the answer provided for you, you know. Uh, this sermon is like the, it's the preacher's equivalent of the answers in the back of the maths textbook. It's a gift. But I've got to be honest, though, that uh, I was a little bit reluctant to take it on. Uh, originally, um, the, the preaching uh, roster for this, uh, this term had me preaching tomorrow. Andrew uh, Laird was going to be preaching today. But he came to me a few weeks ago and he said, oh, look, you know, I can't be there on Tuesday. I'm going to be there on Wednesday. Anyway. Would you mind swapping? And like, the reality is I hadn't done a lot of work on the other passage, but I'd, I'd had, some, I had some ideas and I, I was pretty excited about where I might be taking that passage. Uh, but, you know, really I hadn't done anything more than just a few casual thoughts. But I still wasn't overly keen to, uh, to take on the parable of the sower. And, uh, and I'll tell you why, even though this is a potentially career-limiting point of personal testimony. <laughs> it's because my first thought was... How do you do something clever with the parable of the sower? <laughs> you know, after all, it's, it's got four points. It's got the agricultural metaphor thrown in and the answer is provided. I mean, what sort of room is there for saying something sort of interesting and, and intriguing about this sort of passage? It's not a very honourable thought, I know. Uh, I, I began to imagine what it might feel like for an Olympic diver uh, if they were standing on the three-metre platform and they've been asked to do a, like a safety jump into the pool. You know, there's this sort of combination of disdain and terror um, that, like, like, how on earth could, could a safety jump uh, demonstrate the full range of my skills and abilities? <laughs> but then, the fear... What if I muck it up? <laughs> like, what if I can't even pull off a safety jump off the three-metre platform? What are people going to think if I can't pull off the parable of the sower? You know, it's a pretty safe bet that this is not the first sermon that you have heard on this passage. So this is the sort of passage that is going to make it hard for your sermon to stand out from the crowd, isn't it? It's not a particularly honourable thought. And perhaps I'm the only one in the room who has ever thought like that as you come uh, to preaching, but I suspect that I'm not. Because I suspect that there's, there's that same sort of performance anxiety in young preachers who are very keen to demonstrate uh, the sort of level of skill that they've recently attained. And I suspect that there's also that sort of uh, performance anxiety in more experienced preachers who want to avoid getting shown up by these young punks and demonstrate that they haven't lost it and then I wonder whether it is particularly true for theological college lecturers who try to disprove the adage, those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, teach teachers. <laughs> so I don't think I'm alone. 
particularly I don't think I'm alone because I, I think that this, co- this kind of thinking actually arises from, from a decent place in our hearts. Because we know that preaching is important. You know, if, if this is your role, if this is your gift among the people of God, that you might be a preacher of the word of God, then you want to do that job well. You ought to exercise that gift with all of the energy and ability that God provides. After all, after you've finished preaching, you want the sort of feedback to be more towards the end of that sermon changed my life than the, we've sort of all got together and decided it might be better if you considered other ways of serving the Lord. (laughs) The problem though, of course, is that aiming to preach in the sort of way that would garner more positive feedback is only a short remove from preaching so that we would receive positive feedback. And then of course we find ourselves practicing our acts of righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, which is exactly what Jesus has condemned earlier in Matthew's Gospel back in chapter 6 that we looked at a few weeks ago. We know, don't we, that what we can do with generosity and prayer and fasting, preachers can also do with preaching. And so we turn preaching into a performance. And I see then that there's a dilemma. The dilemma that we have is that we we want preaching to be effective. And yet we don't want preaching to become a spectator sport with preachers standing precariously on the diving platform and congregations waiting expectantly ready to hold up cards with scores out of 10. And yet here we live in this sort of performance-soaked culture. How do we resist this dilemma? There's an issue here for anyone who preaches the gospel, whether it's in sermons, in a youth group talk, in family devotions, conversations with your colleague at work. And it's not just for those times that I give in to those pressures to, con- to perform. But it's also present in that God-honouring desire that preaching would be effective in bringing people to Christ and seeing people, people built up in Christ. So my question is this. What will make preaching bear fruit? What will... What is needed for our preaching to produce the kind of abundant harvest that Jesus speaks about here in this parable? So I'll go back to where I began. I do think that the parable of the sower is a gift for preachers, but in a different way, in a different sense to having four convenient points, an illustration provided and the interpretation spelled out. I think we find that gift by, by sitting in the story and asking the question, what makes this harvest so abundant? And the first point that I want to say is that I don't think it's because of the careful agricultural practices of the farmer. Like, I don't know much about gardening, um, but I do know that sowing seed on the path is a fairly dumb thing to do, right? <laughs> And I imagine also that if you were a wise farmer, that you would know the parts of your paddock that have got sort of rocky, shallow soil. And you'd also know the parts of the plot where there's thorns growing and you'd avoid those places. 
This, this seems like a, a not particularly wise farmer. Now it is possible to imagine that um, uh, what's going on here is that here you have a farmer with a particular plot of land with limited uh, uh, soil and he is trying to make the most of every inch of soil that's available to him. So he's going to sow seed right up against the, the boundaries of the path and right up against the boundaries of the rocky area and the thorny ground and so on. And, and if you're doing that, then you've got to expect there's going to be some that's going to fall onto those parts of the plot and, uh, and will be unproductive. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. As Jesus tells the story, you, you hear that, well, there is some seed that falls on the path and some on the rocky ground and some among the thorns and you get to verse 8 and it says that there's still other seed fell on good soil and there's no suggestion here that there's any more of the seed that falls on the good soil compared to the others there's no suggestion here that the farmer is being particularly careful and strategic in aiming his sowing at the good soil it's as if he scatters carelessly like, not particularly worrying about where this seed ends up. Which is a strange thing to do when you think about how precious seed is. And I wonder whether if you were listening to this the first time, you get partway through verse 8 and you think, ah, oh, Jesus is telling us a cautionary tale. He's trying to come into a strategic ministry. Carefully placed sowing instead of this carelessness that you see in this dumb farmer. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. Because despite the carelessness, there is this abundant harvest. Like even if a full three quarters of his original seed gets wasted and lost, still the harvest is, is able to, to make up for that multiple times over. The point is it's not the manner of the sowing that makes the difference in Jesus' story. So what does make the harvest so plentiful? Well, clearly the soil has a lot to do with it. It's not just about how this message is heard, but the message needs to be understood. And the message not just understood, but also remembered in those times when trouble or persecution comes. And then not only remembered, but also given priority amidst all the other worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. It's important how this message is received, how it is heard. And I think in this, partly what Matthew is doing for us is offering us a way of making sense of Jesus' ministry that we've seen so far in Matthew's Gospel. So Jesus has been preaching this message of the kingdom. Ever since chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus has announced, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus has uh, delivered these two great discourses on righteousness in this kingdom, on discipleship in this kingdom. And Matthew has shown us some of the harvest that has come from this sowing, this preaching ministry that Jesus has had. From Simon and Andrew, James and John back in chapter 4, then the large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan uh, in chapter 5. Even a Roman centurion in chapter 8 and a Jewish tax collector 
in chapter 9. But then there are others. There are others who respond differently to Jesus. There are, there are those who, who call him a blasphemer in chapter 9. The Pharisees who are suspicious of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners in uh, 9 verse 11. Chapter 11 verse 20, we're told that there is no repentance in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum despite Jesus' uh, frequent ministry in those places. Chapter 12 verse 14, the Pharisees are plotting to kill him and in verse 24, they credit the working of his miracles to the work of the devil. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the preaching ministry of Jesus that has received such polarising responses? Well, I think part of what Matthew is doing in this passage is explaining to us, giving us a way of making sense of that. Here in verses 11 to 17, Jesus explains his ministry to the disciples. Now, there's much that you could explore in this passage, thinking about Jesus' messianic mission, how that connects with Isaiah's ministry, as uh, Matthew here quotes uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. I simply want to point out that one thing that Jesus is saying here is that he has chosen to teach in such a way that, the, that each person who hears Jesus preaching will need to answer for the way that he or she hears, the, way, the things that they see. Verse 9, Jesus says, of course, that hearing is more than just a physical phenomenon. It takes more than just ears to hear. If you have ears, then use them well so that you might not just listen but, but hear. Verse 14, we're told that hearing is a, is a willing act of cognition to hear and to understand, to perceive what is being said. More than that, verse 15, ultimately hearing is a matter of the heart. <coughs> failing to hear is, is a moral failing. Our hearts can become calloused, uh, like scar tissue, desensitised to this message of the kingdom. And so one way we can make sense of these varied responses to Jesus' teaching is by recognising that people choose to hear differently. And the same will be true of our preaching. People will choose to hear differently. And that will affect the abundance of the harvest. I wonder also whether part of Jesus' story is there is this suggestion that there's not a whole lot that preachers can do to affect the way that people hear. After all, the sower doesn't begin his day by going out and preparing the soil, removing the rocks, uprooting the thorns, and then ploughing over the, the path. No, the soil is as the soil is. People will hear as people will hear. Which at least is a lesson to us as hearers of sermons to listen well. It's why Cranmer required English Christians when they got together before they heard from the Bible being read, they were to say together Psalm 95 that includes the line, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 
Calvin says the same thing of preaching. He says, when a puny man, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name, at this point we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although he excels us in nothing. There's a statement to deflate the pride of a self-focused preacher, isn't there? (laughs) But it's a reminder that when we hear a sermon, we are listening for the voice of God. Hearers of sermons need to listen well and preachers of sermons need to be the first to listen well to the word of God. But I'm still interested in what this passage offers to us as preachers. And what I see here is though the way that people listen makes a difference, ultimately, it's not their hearing that makes the harvest plentiful. After all, if the sower went out to fix his tractor rather than to sow his seed, there's not going to be a lot of sowing, a lot of uh, harvesting going on. The harvest is plentiful, not because of strategic planning, not ultimately because of attentive listening, but because of the latent fruitfulness of the seed. This one seed that is sown has the potential to produce 30, 60, even 100 more seeds. Yes, it must be sown and yes, it must fall in good soil. But you can't replace the seed with a piece of gravel and expect to get the same result. This seed, this message of the kingdom is a message of abundant fruitfulness. You know, in that light, you look back at the activities of this sower. And perhaps what we see is not carelessness, but carefreeness. A farmer who is so confident of the fruitfulness of the seed that he sows, that his, uh, his only focus is on getting this seed as, as far and wide as possible. To do what Paul encouraged Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 4.2, to be prepared both in season and even out of season. So abundant, so fruitful is this message of the kingdom. And here then, I think, is the gift for preachers from this passage. This seed to sow. This message of the kingdom. Not a message of cleverness, not a message of human wisdom or insight, a gift from God. The old hymn being in my head, we have a gospel to proclaim. Good news for all throughout the earth. The gospel of a saviour's name. We sing his glory. Uh, we, we tell his worth. Which isn't a licence for careless preaching. The seed has to be sown and we sow the seed well but not so that people will be impressed with our sowing, but so the seed would have every chance to land where it can take root. And so we will preach with all the care and wisdom and cultural insight and communication skills that we can muster, not hoping for applause, but praying that the message of the kingdom would be heard and marveled at in all its truth and goodness and beauty. The parable of the sower is a rebuke to self-focused preachers. 
it undermines performance-oriented preaching. And it's an encouragement to anxious preachers. It's an encouragement to preachers in difficult circumstances, preachers at a loss to know how to solve the challenges of the congregation uh, before them, the challenges that they know of, let alone the things that remain hidden. And this parable is a reminder uh, to preachers who are concerned for the effectiveness of their preaching. That we would preach the word. Being prepared in season and out of season. To correct, rebuke and encourage. With great patience. With careful instruction. Preach the word confident in God's promise that this word is at work in those who believe. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Preach the word holding on to God's promise in Isaiah 55. That as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and flourish, producing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so also the word that comes from the mouth of God will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what God desires and achieve the purpose for which God sent it. Preach the word. Because this word is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is God with us. The one whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The one who has been raised and to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We preach the word. You know, earlier in Matthew, Matthew has used that, Jesus has used that same metaphor of the harvest. Jesus has told us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And in response to his call, God's people have asked the Lord of the harvest to send out more labourers into his harvest field. And many of you in this room may well be the answers to their prayers. So listen to the parable of the sower and preach the word for the glory and honour of Jesus. We pray that that might be so. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for this gift that you have given us. This story that uh, reminds us, that uh, points out to us how fruitful, how abundant the message of the kingdom is. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be so confident in this word that we would do all that we can so that this word would be preached, the word would be heard, that lives would be transformed and people would bring you praise and glory. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. <coughs>